This is the first day of the seven-day October 1975 session. Today we will work on a koan in the Mumon Khan, but before we do so, let me say something about <coughs> about a subject that even people who've been practicing Zazen for some time seem to be confused about. And this is the subject of the role of a teacher and the relation of the student to the teacher. In Zen, it is said <clears throat> that a teacher's function is to preserve his student from the teacher's influence. We have the Buddha himself saying, don't accept anything that I give you on faith. Don't accept anything that anybody, your teachers or anyone, gives you on faith, but subject it to the test of your own reason, which means your own life experiences, and insofar as you are able, to your own spiritual awareness. Zen has always developed this strong feeling of independence in its practices. Sometimes this, this feeling of independence is confused with a, a conceit, sometimes even a seeming arrogance. But it is not this at all. <clears throat> Unless the student becomes, at the very least, as good as his teacher, he's only half as good as his teacher. There's another saying in Zen. In the, <clears throat> the golden age of Zen, we have some sayings here by some of the uh, great Zen masters and others. One, <coughs> Shidao, Shitao, who was a <coughs> great Chinese master, said, I would rather sink to the bottom of the sea for endless eons than seek liberation through all the saints of the universe. Then there's another master. <clears throat> um, his name was, well, Wen Shi. That uh, he was, <clears throat> at one time, he was working in the kitchen. And while he was working in the kitchen, um, an apparition of Manjusri often appeared to him. And one day, Wanshi took up a cooking utensil and threw it at the apparition, saying, Manjusri, well, in Chinese it's Wanju. Manjusri is Wanju. Wanju is Wanju, but Wenshi is Wenshi. Wanshi. Each one of us is what he is. Each one is unique. Unique in the sense that each one has his or, his or her own karma. And to try to be like anyone else, even like your teacher, is a great mistake. You couldn't become like your teacher or anyone else, actually, even if you tried. At best, you'd be a poor carbon copy. Then there's another master, Tsui Yan, who said, the full-grown man aspires to pierce through the heavens. Let him not walk in the footsteps of the Buddha. Let him not walk in the footsteps of the Buddha. The book came out a number of years ago called In the Footsteps of the Buddha. We find in other traditions uh, one well-known book in Christianity, Imitation of Christ, In Zen Buddhism, at least, this sort of thing is not, is not encouraged at all. There's another <coughs> Teshan, who was another one of the great Zen masters, Toksan in Japanese, or, or rather, 
Brother Shui Fang, who was a, a disciple of Teshan, said, speaking of Teshan, empty-handed I went to him, and empty-handed I returned. Empty-handed I went to him, and empty-handed I returned. Of course, there are not many people that can go, unfortunately, empty-handed to their teacher. Empty-handed, of course, means with your mind empty of all of the baggage that most people carry around with them. But if one is able to go with an open mind, open mind here means an empty mind. One doesn't return from the teacher with a lot of things that you've learned. You return with a lot of things, you return empty of a lot of things you've unlearned. And here we see the main function of the master. As Haradaroshi used to say, function of a teacher is to teach that there is nothing to learn. Nothing to teach and nothing to learn. Why then do you need a teacher? Well, you need a teacher to learn just that. People always want to acquire something. Whether it's learning at the hands of the teacher or anybody else. To acquire something, to add to their store of knowledge. This is considered to be such a wonderful thing in our culture. To say to anybody that you go to, uh, to Zen, let's say, to unlearn everything you've ever acquired, to get rid of that, would seem like an astounding kind of thing to the ordinary person. There's another anecdote here where <clears throat> when this Shidao, when he visited his master for the first time, the master said, where do you come from? And Shidao answered that he was from Chi. That was where the sixth patriarch had been teaching. And then his master, <clears throat> Ching Wan, asked, what have you brought with you? And Shidao said, that which has that which had never that which had never been lost even before I went to him. Before I went to Cao Chi. That's a place. And then the master further asked, If that is the case, why did you go to Cao Chi at all? And Tao said, If I had not gone to Cao Chi, how could I realize that it had never been lost? This it is our true nature to give it a temporary name, a tentative name. One has to, one has to, one has to have a teacher, ideally, to learn that one has everything within himself. Teacher can't put anything into anybody. But he can help he can help people to open their eyes. He can preserve them from going wrong, but he can't tell them what is right. But students are constantly asking for this kind of information. Students will say, I did everything my teacher asked me to do. I followed very closely his every word. And I never came to awakening. And the implication, of course, of that is that there must be something wrong with the teacher. Not with, not with me, but with the teacher, because I did everything he told me to do. Yet it didn't help. So there must be something wrong with the teacher, not with me. It's kind of a subtle kind of thing that operates with many people. Very often we hear in the course of a session, at a certain point in the session, you are now completely on your own. You must find your own way. Nobody can tell you what is your way.
This is a very important point. This whole, this whole role and relationship of the teacher and the student is quite different in other traditions. And nobody is really a true Zen student who doesn't follow out these teachings of Zen. Now, let us go on to the, uh, to the koan today. And this is number 38 in the Mumong Khan. We've talked about the Mumong Khan, so there's no need to say uh, what kind of book that is, except that it's a book of uh, 48 koans. And it's the first book which is usually assigned people who are working on subsequent koans. The title of the koan is, A Buffalo Passes Through a Window. And the case reads, Gosso said, to give an example, it's like a buffalo passing through a window. Its head, horns, and four legs have all passed through. Why is it that its tail cannot? And that's the end of the case. Then we have Mumon's commentary. If you can penetrate to the point of this koan, open your Zen eye to it, and give a turning word to it, you will then be able to repay the four obligations above and help the three existences below. If you still cannot do so, work with the tail single-heartedly until you can really grasp it as your own. Then we have Mumon's verse. If it passes through, it falls into a ditch. If it turns back, it is destroyed. This tiny tail, how extremely marvelous. And that's the end of the verse. Now for some biographical material on this, uh, the master here, Goso Hoen. This, of course, is the Japanese and the Chinese is Wutsu Fayen. And his dates are 1024 to 1104. It is said that he had reached the age of 35 before he left his home to become a monk. And after taking the precepts, he first studied the consciousness-only doctrines. But he became dissatisfied with these studies and began looking for a Zen master, a teacher in the sect that transmits the Buddha mind. We are now reading from Zen Dust. And eventually he came to Master Wan Chen Fai Wan. who was living on Mount Fushan. And the first time that he met uh, this Enkan, to give him his Japanese pronunciation, the old master said to him, the Tathagata had a secret word, but Mahakashapa could not keep it hidden. This is a very interesting expression. The Tathagata, of course, refers to uh, the Buddha, the Buddha Shakyamuni. And Mahakashapa, you will recall, was his foremost disciple. And there is uh, the incident of where the Buddha didn't speak, he twirled a flower. And only Mahakashapa smiled. This became a koan, as number four, in the uh, Mumonkan. The Tathagata had a secret word, but Mahakashapa could not keep it hidden. And this, and then Hoen, uh, is Wutsu Fayen. He pondered this statement for a year, and he couldn't understand it. 
And then the master told him that since he, that is the master, was becoming aged, it would be better for him, for Hoen, uh, to see another master who was living in the same district. And then he followed his old teacher's advice, and then after a number of years of practice, he became this teacher, whose name is pronounced Tan in Japanese, his most outstanding heir. Then after the death of his teacher, he spent some time uh, on what is called Mount uh, Shumenshan. And then he journeyed north and took up his residence on the famous Yellow Plum Mountain, Wang Meishan. This is where the fifth patriarch of Zen had lived 400 years earlier. And began, it was called the fifth patriarch's mountain in memory of the fifth patriarch. And then this Hoan lived for over four, 30 years on this mountain. That's where he got his name. He's said to have been a straightforward, unassuming man. And he was well known for his plain, colloquial style in his lectures. He used to call himself Uncle Toe of West River, which translates as the fellow who lives somewhere or other at the foot of East Mountain. And then we have here the account of the end of his life. One day, looking at his disciples, the master said, after my death, how will you students carry on my teaching? And then one of them said, his name was Bukkan, the brilliantly colored phoenix dances in the red heaven. The phoenix, you know, is this mythical bird which uh, lives for 500 years in the beauty, in full bloom and the beauty for all 500 years. And then it immolates itself and then rises from its own ashes to live another 500 years. The brilliantly colored phoenix dances in the red heaven. And then another disciple, Butsugen, said, the iron snake lies across the old road. And then the third one, Buka, said, he raised his leg and he said, look at my uplifted foot. And the master said, he who will destroy my sect is Buka. This can be taken in two ways, this last. This could be said in a, in a very, in a very uh, positive sense. Or of course it could be said in a negative sense. However, since the, monk, the most famous of all of his disciples was this Bukha, it seems reasonable to take it in its favorable sense. And then one, <coughs> this account here says, in this summer of 1100, the year 1104, this Hoan took the high seat. This is where the Roshi usually sits in a high seat where he gives his lectures. And he said farewell to his disciples in these words. Zen master Joshu, Chao Chu, had a last phrase. How do you understand it? Let someone step forward and speak. If you can understand, there will be no hindrance to your freedom and joy. If you cannot, how shall I explain this good thing to you? And the master sat quietly for a time, and then he continued. My explanation is finished, but not everyone knows it. Do you want to understand? For the rich man, a thousand mouths are too few. For the poor man, one body is too much. Farewell. This can be understood, the rich man, a thousand mouths are too few. Of course, also means those who are constantly accumulating, endlessly, greedily, knowledge, 
There's no end to it. But for, the, for those who are emptying their mind, even one thought is too much. And then this account goes on to say that at that time the main gate of the temple was under construction and the master went personally to inspect it. And then he said to the workmen, presumably there were monks and others, all of you must exert yourselves. I shall not come again. Then he returned to his own rooms, washed his hair and bathed his body. Then the next morning at dawn, he quietly passed away, sitting in the full lotus posture. At the time of his death, he was more than 80 years old. Now to come to the, <coughs> to the koan again. Goso said, this Goso, this is the same person we've been reading about. To give an example, it is like a buffalo passing through a window. As to give an example, this evidently was taken from one of his shows. He was talking about something and then gave this as an example. And there are many, there have been many commentaries written about uh, where exactly this expression comes from. It's been found, one of the statements of the Buddha was talking about an elephant in a dream where an elephant goes through a narrow, its whole body goes through an, a very narrow orifice, but its tail doesn't go through. But of course, uh, we needn't be concerned with where Goso got this from. This is unimportant. The important thing is, <clears throat> of course, the, uh, the value of this kind of koan uh, to strengthen our practice. It's like a buffalo. Sometimes this is translated as a cow, a red cow, passing through a window. Its head, horns, and four legs have all passed through. Why is it that its tail cannot? This is just the opposite of what the ordinary person would think. You'd think that the tail would be easy to get through, but the head, the horns, and the four legs would have a hard time getting through a small window. We must understand that <clears throat> head, horns, and four legs, this corresponds to our, you might say, our body, our phenomenal body, or for that matter, the phenomenal world. But this case, we can take it as standing for our phenomenal body. Tail. Tail stands for that which is a kind of a tentative name, for that which is always present and yet can't be seen or really named. We can say what our what our head and our uh, our head and our arms and our legs are. Can we say what is it that's behind our arms and our legs and our and our and our feet and hands. What makes them move? You, you know it is said about animals that the tail, in some respects, is the most, especially for a dog, is the most uh, graphic thing of the animal. It's a kind of a semaphore. It tells you the animal's whole state of mind. This may very well be true of the tale for all animals. Sometimes we see animals who've had their tails cut off and they look very strange indeed. Not only do they look weird, but they look unhappy. On a very superficial level, we can, we can think of this koan as meaning that the important, the so-called important things in life 
don't give us any problems. But it's the tiny little things that give us problems. It's the little things that bother a lot of people. People get hung up very often on the most insignificant kind of things. The big things in life they take for granted. And they ought not to. One time, it was a <clears throat> many years ago, somebody came to me and uh, was telling me about a woman, the difficulties that she was having with her husband. She's very much in love with him, but he had such little habits, annoying little habits, which he just would not correct. And when I asked her, what were some of these? And one of them, she said, was he would never put the toothpaste cap back on the toothpaste when he took it off. And she was really hung up on this kind of thing. He was such a fine man, except for this kind of thing. And, and you would have thought that he, he would have been considerate enough, because it just annoyed her no end to, to, to see the toothpaste oozing out of the... We also find <clears throat> cases where people, people who, who work, they're able to get the main aspects of their work done, but then when it comes to the little fine details, somehow they get hung up on them, hung up in the sense that <clears throat> they never get around to doing them. <clears throat> this is what around here around the center we call the 90% syndrome. Work gets 90% done and that last 10% somehow never gets done. One has to push three times as hard to get that 10% done than one did for the 90%. Why is it that the tail cannot go through? Why is it that our, delusive, our delusions assume such a disproportionate aspect of our life. After all, the tail is no different from the body. The same, it is the same flesh and blood, essentially. And our delusions are no different from the rest of our perceptions. Enlightenment is ignorance, ignorance is enlightenment. When the tale is seen for what it is, when we are able to live through these annoying, these distractions which become annoying, or when we are able to see through our wrong thinking, then the tale is not seen or at least does not function apart from the rest of the body. We are able to move freely. We don't get hung up. This koan, by the way, is considered to be by Zen Master Hakuin. He calls this koan, uh, this in, in Japanese, the most difficult koans are called the nanto koans, and this is considered to be one of the most difficult, even of the, of the eight or nine nanto koans in the Mumonkan. There's a commentary on this koan by Zen Master Dogen, where he says, in this world, the cow's tail that should come out from the window always remains behind unless we pull it like mad. As we make a strong effort to rid ourselves of these, <clears throat> this notion of self and other, of good and bad, profit and loss, birth and death. The whole system of dualities by which we separate ourselves from our daily lives, unless we make a real strong effort, we always are getting hung up on them. And hung up means that the rest of, just as, just as in the koan, the, the, the head, the horns, and the four legs, although they have gotten through the window, they still can't move if the tail is caught. 
and until we see these things, see through this basic delusion of self and other. We're always living a kind of on the edge of doom life, always vulnerable. We think that we've achieved a certain amount of, of tranquility, and then one is presented with a certain uh, painful or a certain uh, situation which turns out to be uh, to become painful to oneself and to everyone else. Of course, even with a slight awakening, one begins to get some real insight into this uh, into this problem of taking tentative names for final realities, for being caught up by form, by becoming attached to the phenomenal world. And of course, by working on subsequent koans, this one, for example, and others, gradually what we, what we have dimly perceived becomes clearer, and we're able to act on what we know to be true. Because the koans force us, just as this one, to really act out the truth. In the Doksan room, you just can't talk about the koan. One must demonstrate that one understands the koan, understands the principle that is involved. And of course, every koan, and this one included, is pointing to our true mind, which is beyond all words, all conceptions, all notions of this and that, all naming and calling. How does one live this kind of way? There is one, a Zen master said, First I went out after the fresh green grass. Then I returned, pursuing the, fall, the falling blossoms. Do you see the relation between this and being able to live the koan that we just talked about? There's another, <clears throat> There's another one by Hakuin, where he says, Always the same is the moon before the window. Yet, if there is only a plum branch, plum branch, it is no longer the same. Always the same is the moon before the window. Always the same is the moon before the window. Our true mind never changes. It is always shining. But just one delusive thought, even a beautiful one, and a plum, bra plum branch is certainly a beautiful, is a beautiful thing. One conception, and the mind's purity has been obscured. Next we come to Mumon's commentary. If you can penetrate to the point of this koan, open your Zen eye to it, and give a turning word to it, you will then be able to repay the four obligations above and help the three existences below. Of course, penetrate to the point of the koan means to, to perceive what is involved here to throw off, to scruff off all of the non-essentials and get right to the heart of the problem. And this, not in, a, in an intellectual kind of way, not to recognize what is involved here, but to experientially penetrate. Now, open your Zen eye. What is a Zen eye? Sometimes we speak of the third eye, the eye in the forehead. You know, when you look at a, a Buddha figure, you very often see it has this, uh, 
this mark, this light. And this is called a third eye, a mind's eye. Mind with a capital M. Or we can call it a Zen eye. It means the eye that sees beyond the temporary, the constantly changing temporary phenomena into that which makes possible this constant arising and constant disappearing and rising again reality. And a turning word means a key word which expresses this kind of insight. Now the four obligations above and the three existences below. The four obligations, this refers to the obligation to one's parents, the obligation of gratitude, what is called filial piety, the rather awkward expression really. Filial piety, piety, piety. It really means gratitude for having been given body, a body by our parents. We have not been given the will to be born by our parents. This, is, this does not come from our parents, but certainly a certain kind of, not even a certain kind of body, but the basic rudiments of a body. And of course the body is fashioned according to our own, our own karma and our own thinking and feeling and acting. And it has here, to, the other obligations are to the sovereign, to people in general, and to the three Buddhist treasures, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The gratitude for having, for hearing the teaching. And of course, the teaching is the Dharma, the Buddha who first expounded the Dharma, and then the Sangha, those fellow practices who make it possible for us, such as in a Sashin, to practice. And the three existences, to help the three existences, but these three existences refer to the realms of desire, of form, and no form. This is a, uh, another division of reality of the non-enlightened, the non-enlightened mind. The lowest is the, is the realm of desire. Like a young child, just a bundle of desires. Give me this, give me that. The world of form, of course, means the phenomenal world. Being still being attached to it. And no form means the non-phenomenal world. One can still be attached to the non-phenomenal world. When there is no real understanding of emptiness, and one, one treats it as a kind of concept. These represent, these represent uh, progressively advanced stages in our development. There are three stages. In which, in which we are constantly being oscillated between, going from one to the other. One, one can <coughs> go from desire to form, and even no form, and then go back again to desire. Of course, the person in the, in the realm of no form means that one is not attached to the phenomenal world, and one is relatively free of desire. And this goes on to say, if you still cannot do so, that is, if you cannot penetrate to the point of the cause, then work with the tail single-heartedly until you can really grasp it as your own. Here, of course, Mumon, Mumon is urging us to, to work on our, on our delusions, on our hang-ups, on our frustrations, to see them for what they are. To 
to see our own selfishness, to see our own limitations, to see one's own limitations clearly, sometimes overwhelms people. But we must remember that everybody, everybody has limitations. There's an old saying, the greatest sin is to be aware of none. Perhaps put it in other words, the greatest limitation is to be aware of none, of no limitation. Mind is capable of endless expansion. The work of ridding ourselves of our defilements goes on endlessly. This is what Mumon is really saying. When the tail really becomes part of our life, one is no longer standing outside of this delusive mind. The delusive mind is our true mind. It can no longer be called delusive or true. One does what one needs to do. How does a buffalo, how does a buffalo pass through a window? Not only with its head, horns, and four legs, but also with its tail. It passes through. It just doesn't think about it. It doesn't think how I'm going to do it. How am I going to live my life? People who live lifeless lives are the people who are constantly thinking about them. Now this may seem to be a kind of a contradiction. One hears that we need to reflect on certain things and this is true enough. But at the same time, to constantly weigh and analyze, should I do this, should I do that? This is not living life, this is thinking life, and there's a big difference. In the one case, one becomes like the thinker, you know, bent over, alone and afraid, in a world I never made. The other case, we have the Buddha sitting serene and calmly, one with everything. Throughout heaven and earth, I am the only one. This means this is a world of non-separation, the world of no antagonisms. As long as one doesn't assert one's own opinion about this or that, one doesn't get stubborn about things, one doesn't dam up the flow of one's life, then one moves freely. There are no constrictions, there are no contradictions. This is what this koan is teaching. And we have the Mumon's verse. If it passes through, it falls into a ditch. If it turns back, it is destroyed. Here again we have what seems to be a great contradiction. If it passes through, it falls into a ditch. Even after enlightenment, there are many hazards. Many people have the wrong notion that after enlightenment there's nothing really to do. Life becomes as shining and radiant as a halo. But this is not so. People who, have, <coughs> who are uh, stubborn, bumptious, conceited. They have a great deal of that knocked out. It is quite true. That is, that the conceit itself isn't knocked out. Rather, the roots of it is cut out. It's a good deal like a, a chicken that has its head cut off. The body still continues. It will move around yet for some while before it finally dies. And it is the same way with enlightenment. This is why training after enlightenment is so vital. Why Dogen says there's no end to enlightenment, there's no beginning to, uh, to practice and end to enlightenment, or there's no beginning to enlightenment and end to practice. Practice is enlightenment, enlightenment is practice. You must really take both of those sayings together to really understand each of them. So simply to, to, simply to come to awakening, 
is not enough. There is still the process of working on oneself. Remember in the Iwasaki letters where she talks about this. If it turns back, it is destroyed. Although it doesn't seem possible, perhaps, to many of you, yet there are people who have had an awakening, and yet they fall back. They don't, uh, either in the few rare cases of, an, a, sponta of a spontaneous awakening, there's been uh, even some training. And then they don't do Zazen anymore. Pretty soon they lose. They lose not the awakening, the perception, but they lose the ability to live according to the perception. And this is a vital point. We must not get confused here. <clears throat> there are people from time to time who come and tell me that they have had an awakening. And they describe it, and in a few cases, it seems that they're absolutely right. But because they haven't known what to do with it, so to say, and this also may seem strange, why do you have to do anything with it? Of course, to do something with it means to continue to uh, cleanse one's mind, not only of past defilements, but the, the dust, you might say, that continues to change the metaphor, the dust that from daily thinking and acting, even the enlightened person, there is a certain residue, a certain, certain amount of the dregs of life, you might say, and here not in the psychological sense, which continue to obscure the mirror of one's mind. And to do zazen, which of course means to live a life of single-mindedness, not to become careless or negligent, not to give way to temptations. And the, the ability to resist temptations also is a matter of joriki and not awakening. One will see people <clears throat> who have even trained either in Zen or some other tradition, and yet you find them still weak, they're unable to resist certain temptations. It is true that their, their reaction <clears throat> to their response to these temptations is quite different from the unenlightened person. There is, no, there is not the kind of guilt <clears throat> and the uh, self, the beating of oneself. <clears throat> Nonetheless, <clears throat> there's a marked difference between people who, through long training, have developed a real strength and have been able to surmount weaknesses in their character and personality, certain karma, which has been inherited from the past, and to live a, a free and easy and pain-free life and be able, for those reasons, to help other people. <clears throat> Now this, this tiny tale, how extremely marvelous. <clears throat> you remember in the first koan of Mu, in the Mumon Khan, where Mumon in his verse talks about how enlightenment, what a marvelous thing enlightenment is after many years of darkness this wondrous thing called enlightenment. How wonderful that there is this tale, which means how wonderful that there are obstructions and struggle in our daily life. Because until we have confronted and worked through the challenge of these, of, of these uh, obstructions, this tale does not, in a self-conscious manner, begin to operate in our lives. Our true nature is always working, of course. But because we don't know it, it is of a different order than when we are aware. And awareness is everything. One can have many kinds of uh, comforts 
and uh, what is called, of course, in Buddhism, a heavenly existence, a deva-like existence. But you remember in the Three Pillars where Yastanidoshi talks about that this kind of existence is not, is not to be sought for. Because after the, the karma uh, which brought you to that state is exhausted, you can fall all the way into hell. And we see this in life all the time. On our re recent visit to Switzerland, seeing all the marvels of this beautiful country and the accomplishments of the people, and then to find out that Switzerland, we were told by somebody who lived in Switzerland a long time, that Switzerland has a high divorce rate, alcoholism is very high, and the suicide rate is also high. This is also true in Sweden and some of the other countries, the so-called welfare states where life is comparatively is protected at every well, as much as it can be, I suppose, by the state. We see how, <clears throat> how struggle and pain, when they are understood, can be a real means to our enlightenment. The tale is no different from the rest. Our delusions are our enlightened mind. And so, and so to try to avoid the painful situations which arise out of our deluded mind, this is a mistake. To wallow in them is equally a mistake. This is nothing but pure ego. But to honestly and courageously face up to the situations and circumstances that come to us in our daily life, whatever they are, and to transcend them, this, of course, makes us stronger, and it strengthens our practice, and it makes us finally see that the tail is no different from the rest of the body. Just up here, recite.